Welcome to Positive Disintegration, a path to authenticity. In this episode, Chris and I are talking to David Sweeney, who's going to share his personal journey with us. David is going to bravely tell us about his story and lived experience of undergoing self-discovery as an adult. We'll talk about finding out about giftedness, the theory of positive disintegration and overexcitabilities, and David's self-education and exploration into trauma, neuroscience and mysticism. These kinds of journeys can be earth-shaking to say the least, and I want to thank David for sharing himself so openly so we can all see what kind of an impact these journeys of transformation and finding out about self can make in someone's life. listeners, welcome to Positive Disintegration Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me is co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. Hey, Chris, how are you going? Hi, Emma. I'm doing okay, thanks. How are you? Very good. Summer's finally here, and I'm a happy camper for it not to be raining. Well, that's nice. I mean, winter's here, and I'm not a happy camper about that, so I envy you. It's funny. I envy you because you send me all these fabulous pictures of beautiful snowscapes and um i don't get to know what that's like that's true i guess we're blessed to have snow if i mean i guess snow is exciting if you don't have it but for me having almost 50 years of snow in my life i'm tired of it (laughs) it's all i think it's all about perspective um and your experiences um which is kind of a good segue into introducing our guest because our guest today is david sweeney Um, And David's going to offer his perspective on his journey with positive disintegration. Uh, So for our listeners, David's a fellow traveler on the path to authenticity. He's not an academic or a psychologist, but he's here to talk about his lived experiences. So David identified as gifted late in life and has experience with positive disintegration himself, also with giftedness, and he's here to share some insights on trauma and how early trauma shaped his life and his abilities. So welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. It's a, it's a real incredible opportunity. So thank you for the invitation. Yeah, we're so glad to have you with us, David. Yeah. And we are going to kick things off with the standard question of please tell us how you first discovered Dabrowski's theory. It's a great story, actually. Um, so several years ago, I had made a recent career change. For most of my career, I was working in the um, in outdoor retail, so working for uh, brands like Patagonia, North Face, Mountain Hardware, brands that people recommend or re- recognize. Um, I was an outfitter. I worked for sales rep agencies, um, and then later as a as kind of an industry analyst. So primarily, my work was really one on one based. You know, I was helping people get outfitted for, you know, go climbing Kilimanjaro. I was fitting hiking boots on the Appalachian Trail. I was, you know, advising brands or stores how to better engage with their customers. But I I made a career change to something a little different, still in retail, but but as a assistant manager for a grocery store, a little bit different in that while I wasn't working with one-on-one people as, as much, and I was still in a retail setting, but in a leadership role, I was working with a group of about 10 people. Um, we were leading um, a staff of about 80, and I'd say serving about you know, several thousand customers a day. 
So the social and really environmental aspect of my job, you know, drastically changed. Um, and for me, it was really difficult at times being in that, in that space. For a long time, you know, I viewed kind of my, these sensory abilities that I had as, as kind of a superpower and I, you know, could use them in a, a one-on-one -on -one setting or really uh, help someone, you know, find the right hiking boot or, or fit the right pack. Um, but in this case, it was in a, an area that was, it was very complex. It was very loud, it was very noisy, lots of people. So I found myself frequently kind of overwhelmed by that, that sensory stimuli. It was really challenging to be present sometimes in those moments when I really needed to be, um, not just for the customers I was helping, but for the people I was leading. So for me, like at its best, I found that, you know, I, I could really lead with presence and affect people. Um, but at its worst, uh, I found that, as a hard way to put it, it almost felt like I was being slowly being electrocuted. It was really just a full body sensory experience. Uh, so I, I started working with this therapist that I found specializing in uh, highly sensitive people. Uh, I'd been turned on to kind of the work of Elaine Anron, and, and, and it seemed like, you know, this was kind of a path that would help me better understand this experience. So I had been working with this therapist for a couple months. We had a handful of sessions in and he, we kind of started our session and he says, David, uh, you know, we're really, we're getting into areas that are really outside of my area of expertise and I'm going to need to refer you to someone else. And I wasn't sure what he was saying. I, I was, I'm like, what? I, I thought things were progressing really well. And, and he says to me, he says, well, David, he says, you're gifted and you need to be seeing someone who specializes in working with gifted adults. Um, so this really came as a shock to me. Uh, I was 48 years old and I'd never really identified as gifted, you know, for my, for a good chunk of my life, you know, I really thought that, you know, I was kind of under this narrative that something was really wrong with me. You know, I was always very different than people. I didn't really fit in social situations that, you know, could be really challenging for me. So, you know, I had this kind of thought that there was something that was really wrong with me. Um, and I really wanted to, you know, get better. He says, well, you know, you're in luck. This, this therapist that works with gifted adults, uh, she, in fact, she lives uh, in the same town as you. And uh, her name is Elizabeth Mika. So... I was introduced to the theory uh, by Dabrowski and TPD um, expert Elizabeth Mika, and I didn't know anything about what it meant to be gifted. I didn't know anything about Casimir's Dabrowski. I didn't know anything about overexcitabilities. Four years uh, later, uh, I've been working with Elizabeth, and uh, it's really been an incredible journey. Uh, I'm really grateful uh, for her guidance and encouragement. Uh, it's really been, it's, it's really great. What a cool way to be introduced to the theory by Elizabeth. I, that's very enviable in my opinion. Well, I, I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> yeah, but that's great. Um, I've met so many people over the past several years who have discovered their giftedness in adulthood and it's earth shaking, you know, revelation to have in adulthood, especially because of the narratives around giftedness in our society that it's 
that it's all about achievement or, you know, there, there's just a stereotype of giftedness as like, a, you know, a brainy kid. There's really very little that people understand about the, the inner experience of giftedness, what it means to be giftedness outside of that. What really stands out to me, David, from your story is, you know, because there's got to be a lot of people out there just doing nine to five jobs like, like me, like doing a nine to five. And, and I had a similar sort of experience going through life going, why can't I just life an adult like other people? Like, why am I so broken? You know, what is wrong with me? I was a smart kid. Why can't I figure this out? Um, and that story of like thinking that there's something wrong with you uh, until someone says, actually, you fit into this category over here of, of being gifted um, and you find out about overexcitability, you're like, oh, it's not just me. I'm not faulty. You know, I, there's actually something to explain the way I am and I'm not broken, I'm just different. But that experience, like, speaks to me quite profoundly and I'm sure it speaks to a lot of people that are listening as well. Yeah, I mean, to say that it was kind of an earth-shattering moment, like, in my kind of life, it was it was an understatement. I really, I really felt like, you know, I was this high bell tower and the bell had been rung and there was no unringing that bell. Uh, it, it's just, it was like really kind of, it, it made, it made sense kind of in that moment, but, and it, but it, it's really taking me some time to, to really integrate that, that knowledge, but also understand what that meant. It's, um, uh, very much like the ugly duckling, ugly duckling moment. Um, you sort of see your reflection and go, shit, I'm not a broken duck. I'm actually a swan. But then you're left with a puzzle of, okay, how do I swan now? Like, I don't know anything about being a swan. I don't know what to do with my wings. I don't know how to manage my long neck. And there's this process yeah. afterwards of trying to, trying to figure yourself out. Yeah. And it, and it was, you know, it was particularly challenging because, you know, here I was trying to figure out what was wrong with me and fix it. And then here's somebody that says, well, there's something actually that's incredibly right with you. It literally blew my mind. So, yeah, so I, you know, here I am, I'm sitting in my car in the parking lot uh, at work on my lunch break, and I'm calling Elizabeth Mika. And uh, she, you know, picks up the phone in her, her wonderful Polish accent, you know, voice, and, and is talking to me about, you know, um, meeting. And she asked me, she asked me first if I was, I think, as I recall this, uh, if, if I was interested like in IQ testing or evaluation. And, and I told her, I said, you know, honestly, I really just want to understand what's happening. Uh, you know, I really want to understand, you know, what's going on here. I really want to understand what this means. And I, and I also understood that this was a, this was a, this was something significant for me to integrate into my, not only my awareness, but how it would shape my understanding of myself. And I really wanted to do it well. Um, so, you know, kind of putting boundaries on it or trying to define it right away. You know, I always, I say this to my wife, you know, Emily, and it's, it's kind of like this thing that I, I, I tell her, you know, leave room for the magic to happen. You know, I, I never want to kind of like be in a hurry to like define something sometimes or put boundaries on it. And, and this was a big enough thing not to put boundaries on right away. So I started working with Elizabeth and I started understanding what positive disintegration meant. 
uh, what it meant to be gifted. Naturally, as anyone does these days, I went online uh, and started, you know, reading. What I started finding was a lot of stuff on the internet about giftedness that, that didn't particularly match what I felt was my situation, you know, um, because, you know, most of the information that I found was geared towards academics, towards education, towards the achievement and, and you know, parents and their children and understandably so, you know, it's, it's, you know, a situation that parents want to know about, you know, they want to help their kids. Uh, but as an adult in this kind of situation, you know, I'm, at the time I was 48 years old and I'm like, where am I in this picture? Um, and it was really difficult for me to find that information. You know, I found some kind of some gifted blogs and, and some sites, um, the sources that, you know, I, I found most helpful at the time were, uh, sites like intergifted, positivedisintegration.com and, um, thirdfactor.org. Those were three sites that I found myself going to the most. Um, and getting an idea of, of what gifted meant. I was also doing a lot of reading. Uh, I really learn by immersing myself in a subject matter, uh, and I can read voraciously. So I was reading, you know, the books like, well, of course, you know, Living with Intensity. That's the first one that came up on everybody's list. You know, I started reading, you know, Howard Gardner and Multiple Intelligences, trying to find myself uh, and, and where I was there, um, and then, you know, I would find more and more resources, you know, from those books, you know, just going down the rabbit hole, uh, like Alice, you know, so I'm reading about the giftedness, but then while I'm also working with Elizabeth, you know, reading about the theory of positive disintegrations and the levels and overexcitabilities and trying to get an understanding of what that means and how that fit in my life. And so our early work together you know, there was some extensive biographical kind of work I had to provide to, um, to Elizabeth. And so I'm sure from her perspective, with that information, she could, you know, have a good idea of where this was headed, but I had no idea, you know, she was my guide. Finding this kind of understanding of how, you know, my mind works in these, you know, texts, it was, it was really, it was really illuminating for me. Um, because I, I kept seeing more and more of myself in these books and how much it made sense. And as Elizabeth and I worked more together, I could really kind of begin to see aspects of my history um, in the theory. I would say about this time, like about a year had gone on. And uh, in uh, Intergifted, uh, one of the, the leaders of the group at the time, uh, Kelly Pride, she's involved. She has her own site. She was on inter, she's on Intergifted too. Uh, she was launching this Gifted Mindfulness Collective, this pilot program that she was doing. And to me, it seemed like a great, uh, a great thing to participate in. Uh, both me and my wife, who also identifies as gifted, were joining the group. Uh, it consisted of like weekly uh, guided meditations and discussions uh, with other gifted adults. Uh, there was uh, an online discussion group too. And so, you know, so we started meeting with these, these people in this space. And it was really, for me, it was really my first experience of being in a group of gifted people. It was my first gifted mirroring uh, experience uh, outside of, you know, Elizabeth and my wife. And 
it was really incredible. And I, I, it was such a wide range of people with unique abilities and experiences. And it was really, uh, it was incredible. It was great too, where I could be in a space like that. And, and it was understood that I could share myself completely, uh, and really be validated for that experience. And really, you know, people understood where I was coming from. As kind of our group progressed, we, we met for like about three months. Um, and as we progressed, um, I was able to kind of share more of my inner experience with the group members. And what's challenging, you know, for, I mean, for all of us really, is that we can never truly know another person's inner life. You know, we only, we only know and experience our own reality. And so, you know, sharing kind of these experiences that uh, I had with other people, I found that I was able to have these access, uh, this access to more advanced, I think, states of consciousness than I was aware of. Uh, at the time, I was also kind of reading um, that book, The Mind Illuminated. I had asked Kelly at a point, I think, during that, if, you know, if it was possible for something for like asynchronous development with something like meditation and states of consciousness. And, you know, I mean, certainly it was possible. But uh, more as I, as I got to kind of share um, what I was experiencing with other people, you know, Kelly connected me with uh, another participant in the group that uh, had somewhat similar experiences as me. And there was one common uh, aspect of our history, uh, and it was that we were both uh, adopted at birth. After we learned more about each other, you know, um, they asked me if I ever heard of uh, the work uh, by Nancy Verrier. She was a, a psychologist who um, had written a couple books um, about the experience of adoption, uh, separation trauma. Um, the first book that she wrote was called The Primal Wound. It was released in 1993. And uh, her second book was uh, Coming Home to Self, and that was released in 2003. And when I started reading those books, um, the, the primal wound concept from Nancy Verrier is when the mother and child are separated after childbirth. Um, she really kind of explores, you know, the outcomes of disrupting that bond. As an adoptee, it's, you know, it's also important for me too to really acknowledge that my experience as an adoptee, you know, I speak for my own experience here. Other adoptees, you know, have had, I'm sure, similar experiences and some have had, you know, different. It's, it's also, I think, important to acknowledge that in this kind of adoption event, you know, it impacts three people. There's the adoptee, there's the birth mother, and there's the adopted mother. Uh, there's these three very different experiences. You know, all three are really, you know, traumatized in their own unique way through this experience. But it's also this, this tremendous act of love it's it's a really you know incredible but also challenging experience for all three so david i understand that you 
I've also read up about some of the different types of trauma that come from that, from your experience. Can you tell us a little bit, bit more about the types? Yeah. So as I understand Nancy's work, there are three traumas of the adoption experience for the adoptee. Um, there's that initial separation from the mother at birth, which is really a kind of psychological near-death experience. What that means is, you know, in the past, I say 10 to 20 years or so, we've really come to kind of understand those, you know, early years of life uh, psychologically in a, in a very uh, more complete way. So while physically we're born at that moment of childbirth, psychologically we're born over those first years of life. So separation from the mother at birth, that's the first type of trauma. Um, the second is the separation from this necessary co-regulation between the mother and the biological family and the child. It's these co-regulation experiences that uh, shape how we respond to emotions, we respond to reality, we respond to what's safe in the world. Um, and then there's this unacknowledged or unrecognized anxiety and grief throughout the lifespan because the adoptee has trauma that they're not aware of or they don't know what happened because it's something that happened very early in their life and they don't really maybe know why. Needless to say, Nancy's work is controversial. Um, it points out that um, our understanding of the adoption experience is incomplete uh, and it challenges the dominant cultural narrative of adoption. Adoptees um, are 2% of the population, but they're twice as likely to be in therapy. They're 30, 40, 30 to 40% more likely to be in addiction treatment and have three to four times uh, higher rates of suicide. At this point, you know, I, I'm still trying to, you know, kind of a better understanding of, you know, what it means to be gifted. Again, I have this new information now about separation trauma. So I'm still trying to kind of understand and work through this, this really kind of overwhelming sensory experience that, you know, I'm having, you know, in the workplace, in my life. And, and so I'm finding opportunities to really in Dabrowski terms, practice auto-psychotherapy. Um, I'm further reading, you know, in TPD at this time, and I'm really seeing my experiences uh, in the levels and, and better understanding my OEs. Um, you know, I, I'm having, you know, conversations with Elizabeth about, you know, interactions that I have at work or experiences that I'll have. I can see, you know, her smiling and, you know, kind of nodding at me, you know, understanding you know, what's happening. Um, but for me, when I'm reading, you know, Dombrowski, particularly, you know, I was reading personality shaping at the time. Um, there was a time when I'm really into the book and the reading, the book is pretty dense. The writing is, is pretty dense, but for somebody, at least that I found that is experiencing what's happening in the book, you really, you really see what's happening. And, and for me, 
as someone who is, you know, I have a very vivid imagination, you know, I, I was almost, I felt like getting, getting to the point where I was wondering if I was imagining this experience that I was having. I was really beginning to kind of question, well, this is impossible. This, I, you know, I, how can I be doing this? You know, I was really getting some serious imposter syndrome going. Uh, and I really distinctly remember myself just tossing the book across the room and I was just like going to take a break from reading. It was at that point where like I was really kind of questioning, okay, well, am I imagining this? Am I, you know, projecting my experience into the book? So I, I really needed to um, really kind of conduct some, really some experiments and really kind of figure, you know, this out. Is this something that I'm able to work with or work through? So, you know, Elizabeth really encouraged me to work through, you know, this in, in a creative way. And, you know, taking walks in nature and wilderness was really something that I enjoyed doing. And, and I worked on, you know, taking pictures in, in nature. It's one of the things I really enjoyed doing. And, you know, so photography is something that I really worked on and, and not just, um, you know, making really great pictures, but you know, really paying attention to the creative process and how I really spent time in that place. You know, the messages I told myself, you know, the beliefs I had about, well, is this good enough? Is this not good enough? Am I good enough? And, and it was a really nice place to kind of play with that. Um, you know, it's, People look at, I think, the output of an artist or the work and, and they say, oh, like, well, that's, that's the work. And, and to me, I, I feel like, you know, it's, it's that kind of output that's really working on you. It's the work that works on you. And it, it really, I think, kind of shapes, you know, from an artist's perspective, I think it really shapes their voice. And, you know, finding your voice and finding your path is really important there. Um, and, and I was also at work, you know, working on really trying to, you know, identify, you know, possibilities for meaningful experiences with customers and with my coworkers and really be more present in those places, um, both in, you know, really intense, you know, great experiences, but also, you know, uh, really challenging ones, you know, places where I was, you know, having to challenging and difficult conversations with, uh, co-workers, with customers. Um, I'd also had the opportunity to, you know, develop and start working with um, some neurodiverse uh, co-workers uh, in the store environment, which really um, gave me an opportunity to be creative in, in that aspect. Uh, and keep in mind, all of this was going on um, during the pandemic. Well, one thing I want to ask you about that, you know, because you one, you're dealing with a pandemic, but two, you're dealing with all, all these realizations. Um, you're trying to conduct auto psychotherapy on yourself. You're doing a lot of reading, and so you're having you know a lot of realizations, and your world's changing, and you're trying to apply it at work. What are your thoughts on balance for people who are trying to get through their normal daily life, which arguably is involved enough? but also trying to do all of this work on themselves on top of, of everything else. What were your, you know, cause you've also, you mentioned you've got a wife, so you're going to have to maintain your relationship. Um, do you have any thoughts about you know, how you balance all that out? Yeah. You know, for me, you know, I had already, I had, um, 
built kind of like what I what I called, you know, these active and passive measures um, and ways that, you know, it's, and then one of the things that I learned from like learning about HSP is I learned that like sensitivity is, isn't selective. So, you know, just as I would find like um, being in a, in a very stimulating environment could be very draining. I also found that there were, you know, experiences that could recharge me very quickly you know, being sensitive, you know, I'm also, you know, I'm, while I'm sensitive to kind of spaces that are, are very challenging and draining, I'm also very sensitive to really good things too. So, uh, you know, doing yoga and meditation was really, uh, really rewarding. You know, also, you know, um, listening to music with headphones on, um, being in nature and, you know, spending time with uh, animals. I think like those three things like nature, music and animals, they're this kind of like almost like this global kind of uh, regulating activity where I found it, it really helped recharge me. And, you know, of course, you know, making sure that I was eating right, making sure that I was getting enough sleep, you know, really you know, making sure that I was taking good care of myself uh, throughout that stuff. Um, you know, I, I was um, already pretty used to, you know, like really kind of consuming large amounts of, of information, but it's also really important to come up for air. It's good to like recognize opportunities for taking a break and, and coming back down, you know, particularly if, you know, being like intellectually and imaginationally overexcitable, it's, it's something where you really got to find a balance. Does that make sense? It does. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about the experiences that you were seeing yourself in when you were reading personality shaping and like struggling with imposter syndrome. Because while I feel like I have a good sense of it because I've read that book, I know that most of our listeners haven't. And so if you could just give us a little bit more detail there, that would be wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, when I first started kind of reading about overexcitabilities, uh, I, you know, and I was reading about, you know, multiple intelligences too. Like I thought, all right, well, you know, it seemed really strange to me that I would have more than one overexcitability that didn't seem possible. Um, and, uh, you know, but I w would keep seeing myself in multiple uh, overexcitabilities. So that was in itself really difficult. Um, and also, you know, as much as like, like say, like, I could see myself like, self-education or education of oneself, you know, I definitely have a history of that. Really teaching myself and learning new things on my own was something that I really enjoyed doing best. Um, in fact, school was extremely difficult for me. I never finished college. I was, you know, really kind of an average student. So I came away from that, that, that I really didn't, I didn't, you know, I wasn't really smart or I didn't learn well, but I found that like, by like, I spent a year in uh, at Prescott College in Arizona, which is more of an experiential uh, ed school, and I really learned how to learn. So I saw myself in in this kind of um, education of oneself. But you know, I always had trouble. You know, um, when I was reading, you know, Dombrowski, anything I read, I had trouble coming away with subject object in oneself. And and anytime like somebody would get asked that question, you know, it it. it it always seemed like a very slippery answer. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I mean, I was just wondering because I, I know that you have mystical experiences. And so um, 
you know, I just know that personality shaping is one of the more spiritual works really that we see from him. You know, once he started working with Michael Pihovsky and uh, Andrew Kafchak, it was more, they were trying to be more empirical mm-hmm. in the writing about the theory. And so, you know, I just, I guess if, if there's anything you can say about mystical experiences, I would really encourage you to, because we've had very few spiritually oriented episodes. And yet I know that we have a lot of listeners who are interested in this. Yeah, for sure. Um, when I had talked with Elizabeth about kind of this aspect of my history, you know, I, I wasn't sure, you know, how to, to bring it up or talk about it. I first started having, you know, I would say, that's what I would say, like a spiritual experience or a transformative uh, experience was when I was 14. For me, it was, it happened actually when I was at like summer camp at Boy Scout camp. And um, it was this experience where um, I had a, a family emergency and I had to, I stayed at camp while um, my family had to take care of that. And so when I stayed at camp, um, I was with a group of uh, a troop that wasn't anybody I knew. So there wasn't this kind of uh, group or, or social group of people for me to kind of really compare myself to. And so I got to spend a lot of time by myself uh, in the woods at that time, uh, going for walks um, in the space of like the weekend between when the new group of campers kind of came up, I had really a lot of time by myself uh, in the woods. And, you know, there was this experience that I had just walking down the trail in the woods by myself. And it was really the first time that I had really been like alone or by myself uh, in a space like that. And it was really this, this experience that I had of just this really intense just unity and, and oneness. And it was really, I really remember it, you know, distinctly. Throughout that week, I had these opportunities to spend more time like walking in the woods. And I was, you know, doing, I was taking this orienteering merit badge. I remember these, this course like took me all over the woods just by myself. And I would have this time to uh, just be in the woods by myself. And, and ever since then, you know, I always felt just really, just called to that place. And it really was something that that really drew me further uh, when I was a teenager. I was really fortunate that my mom and dad supported that, uh, particularly because it was a really challenging time in my life uh, as a teenager. Um, I was going to public school. Things were really, it was very different for me. I went to a Catholic school for the first kind of, I went for grade one through eight. That was a very small uh, Catholic school, but when I went to public high school, it was a very different experience. And this really kind of is having that experience, you know, at camp, but then also having this this other experience in high school. It was very, it was it was really challenging for me. And so, you know, I'm really glad that my parents supported me. You know, going further into the outdoors, you know, backpacking and things like that. And when I went to Prescott College, I you know had really spent more time backpacking, and I had my first. Uh, solo uh, wilderness experience there that was a little bit longer. It was three days uh, solo experience by myself, fasting, um, being by myself, not seeing really another uh, person for for three days. And that really opened up, I think, my experiences for me like outside in the wilderness. And it really wasn't until like my 20s through my 30s, I started uh, going on deeper and deeper uh, solo trips. I'd gone on several 
uh, solo backpacking trips uh, in my 20s and early 30s. Uh, and I would really go to like remote uh, wilderness places, um, usually about seven days or so. And just by myself, I wouldn't bring a watch or a book or a journal or, you know, just the bare necessities of what I needed. And uh, I really wouldn't see another human being for about seven days. And really the first kind of then really significant mystical experience for me was on that trip. And, you know, as I read more about, you know, mystical experiences, you know, for me, it, it seems like, have you ever like told up? had a funny situation with somebody and, and you try and retell that story to another group of people. And you're like, well, you know, it, it didn't come across as being funny. Uh, and then you just say, well, you had to be there to me. I, I think that mystical experiences, you know, really speak, you know, deeply and uniquely to, to each person in a language that, that, that they really understand. And for me, you know, when I've shared kind of the details of that experience with other people, it when I say it, it, it really doesn't, it, it comes across as like, oh, it's like one of those things where like, oh, well, you had to be there. I think there might be two reasons for that. And the first is that, you know, out of a, I guess, established mm. religious context, um, anyone sort of speaking about mystical experiences or spirituality kind of get thrown in this bucket with, well, you're a bit of a hippie, you're a bit of an oddball, you you know, must wear tie-dye and eat tofu and and it's not really taken all that, that seriously sometimes. So it, it's awkward for, you know, an intellectual, otherwise rational person to talk about it. But um, I think the other reason is something a friend recently told me this analogy and they said, um, excuse me, it's going to get a little bit coarse, but he said religion is a bit like a penis. Um, it's okay to have one, but you don't want to take it out in public and, or show it to anyone who hasn't asked and you certainly don't want to force it on anyone who doesn't want it. Um, and I think that's really the way that we kind of think about spirituality. It's like, oh, it's a private thing. You should really sort of keep it to yourself. You know, no one really, you, you don't have to you know, put it out there. Don't wave your metaphorical yeah. dick around kind of thing. Yeah, for me, I had, you know, at the time, you know, I had a very complex relationship with like my religious upbringing. And so I think, you know, you know, going out like to seek or to find like, like this mystical experience, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's not something that, that I was certainly expecting. And while, you know, I think that the content of the experience or like what happened for me, while, while it was certainly, it really shaped who I am. You know, when I think about mystical experiences, I think about did the experience like for that person, you know, bring them closer to union with the divine or whatever they call, however they believe that is. Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, yeah. they're ineffable. You know, I mean, they, they're not always meant to, to be put into words. So that a, absolutely makes sense. I remember too, like uh, around that time, I was reading uh, that book, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Like so many people had told me, oh, you should go read that book. You should read that book. And I finally got around to reading it. And there's a saying in there that really stuck with me. Like he says, you know, truth comes knocking at the door and you answer it and you say, oh, go away. I'm looking for truth. For me, you know, this mystical experience and, and how 
it's uh, affected me. They, they, they've always been kind of this, this act of, of negation where, you know, the more I kind of um, stop getting in my own way, the more I, I find myself, you know, drawn to that experience. I was just going to say, for me, David, I see a parallel there when you say, like, you know, things come knocking for you. Um, I see a parallel between that and your experience with reading Nebraska because when you were looking at the dynamisms and the overexcitabilities and going, oh, that can't possibly be me, um, there's there's almost, um, particularly when you're getting to know the theory of positive disintegration, sometimes there's this sort of feeling of, how did I ask this? How, how did I, you know, accidentally fall into this stuff? Um, because I'm seeing myself in this theory. Um, I, surely I couldn't have possibly fluked all those dynamisms. And I think there's a little bit of an element of that sort of feeling of it's almost just lucky coincidence as well. So I'm seeing that as well in, in your experience of, you know, if, if it comes looking for you, you're kind of like, well, how did I stumble upon this? And it, it feels almost accidental, which can kind of give you that sort of imposter syndrome kind of wondering about the whole thing. Absolutely. And I, I also think too, like, and just as I needed to kind of have a, a more complete or better understanding of what it meant to be gifted, I, I think too, like, it's really important to kind of like, it was important for me to like, like understand kind of what it means to be a mystic or what you know that kind of mystic definition is um, because the kind of definition that I was kind of pulling around was you know there you know you know mystics like you know Saint Teresa of Avila Saint John of the Cross you know I have all of this kind of Catholic history kind of behind me here and here's me saying there's no way that's me that's not me uh, you know uh, I I just didn't see myself there. Um, so it was really kind of reassuring to, you know, I, I, you know, again, just like searching for the giftness, I started researching more kind of what, you know, I started reading the mystics like Evelyn Underhill, uh, Eddie Hilsom. Um, and um, what was the other book that we talked about? Uh, Chris, it was the, was the Modern Mystics. Um, I can't remember the name of the book now. Yeah. Oh, right. Ordinary People as Monks and Mystics by Marcia So, you know, reading. Well, can I just, you know, you just reminded me one person and, you know, I don't know if, you know, calling him a mystic is quite right. But one person who Elizabeth introduced me to who I really love his work um, is Eknath Ishwaran. I don't know if you if read anything by him, but oh, my gosh. As I said, it was really important for me to kind of like broaden my kind of understanding of what it meant to be a mystic um, and really kind of hear some other voices about what that that looked like um, but also in the same sense I I really wanted to kind of understand you know what was happening um, in the brain like what was happening um, psychoneurobiologically um, you know um, divine intervention aside you know what's happening in my brain? Like what's going on there? Um, so I had, you know, really all of these questions about, you know, what was going on, you know, um, with me in this kind of this psychosomatic experience, 
what was going on with me in this gifted sense and what was uh, going on in this neurological sense too. And so I I wanted to find, particularly from, you know, Nancy Verrier's work, I wanted to find, you know, evidence or or validation in science. And, And I came across like the work of Alan Shore in particular. Um, He had a number of white papers that I found on his website, a lot of YouTube lectures, and he has like these doorstop of uh, books on affect regulation in the self. And so what I found out, which which kind of helped me really understand kind of what's going on in the brain uh, possibly was trauma early in life uh, affects the limbic system, the right hemisphere, uh, the insula, and all of these areas are responsible for my embodied experience of reality, or emotions, relationships, and meanings. And, and from this adoption or separation trauma, there's kind of these potential outcomes that I was experiencing. You know, things like hypervigilance, um, these heightened arousal states, um, early emergence of, of my ego. So I was really starting to see kind of in, you know, at least in some of the science, you know, kind of why or, or how I might be experiencing those things. You know, when I think of, you know, what I was experiencing with my emotions, you know, that's all right hemisphere stuff. When I think of what was happening with kind of this this body sensation stuff, you know, that was all the limbic system. And really these these meditation experiences, you know, when I read about the insula, I think about... You know, the insula is really kind of this center of, of our mind and, and our body. You know, and so, you know, that kind of made sense to me. So, David, at one point when we were meeting, you know, prior to recording tonight, you referred to yourself as a human tuning fork. And I really loved that image. And I've been thinking about it since we talked about it. And so I wonder if you can speak a little bit more about um, affect resonance and you know, or limbic yeah, resonance. For me, this was really, really, I feel like where my kind of journey began in this search is really this kind of this embodied experience that was like for me really kind of this foundation of, of what I was learning to be my gifted abilities. When I was really looking into kind of trying to better understand the neuroscience aspect of it, it really came from this uh, reading of Nancy Verrier, this reading of Alan Shore. And also I was starting to find it more in um, creative work. So in, in work by um, uh, Aaron Manning in particular, who, who works um, as a dancer, choreographer, but also a cultural theorist. And so I was seeing this word, you know, resonance, like come up a lot. It comes up a lot in like the theory of love. It comes up a lot and this, you know, limbic resonance and affect resonance. And so it really, it's something that, that, that stuck with me. And, and I really came up with this concept of this thought about, you know, this being a human tuning fork. And the way, a, you, know, a, you know, a tuning fork works is, you know, you strike this tuning fork for, you know, this particular, for this particular sound. And like you hold it up next to like uh, a guitar that, that, that is tuned to that same note. And that string will, will resonate. So there's, there's this resonance that happens. You know, for me, I, I found, you know, aspects of that in 
you know, Alan Shore's work and talking about what are the regions of the brain that are affected by that separation trauma. You know, it's the limbic system, it's the right hemisphere, it's the insula, it's this connectivity of all these three aspects of the brain, you know, working in union, it's and really kind of shaping how we experience reality and emotion. And it also then, you know, happened to be the area of my brain that was was affected, you know, during this this separation trauma, this near-death experience at birth. You know, so I have this neurological, you know, aspect of this trauma. I have this this trauma of of adoption that I'm trying to better understand and and I also have, you know, these mystical experiences that, you know, that Lawrence Nixon talks about and, and his work. And, and I'm trying to comprehend and integrate that, too. Um, and so I'm trying to come to then is like, how do all of these, you know, how do all of these, these three integrate? And for me, you know, I, I feel like there's this. When I'm reading, you know, Lawrence's work, at the end, he's talking about, you know, how this, uh, on this spectrum, the spectrum of, uh, like, almost the kind of resonance, we have, like, the schizophrenic, we have the artist, and we have the mystic. You know, all of them really tuned in to this, this frequency. You know, you have the schizophrenic that's really challenged with um, being with this, this experience. You have the artist that depending on their medium, you know, they're tuned into this, this frequency and they're using, you know, dance or they're using, you know, photography or they're using, you know, words to, to resonate with this experience, you know, and then you have the mystic. And to me, like the mystic, you know, there's this, there's this resonant intelligence that, that they have. And it's this, these resonant patterns of, of meaning that, that they're tuned into um, on multiple levels. And I really like Evelyn Underhill's you know, definition of the mystic the best. You know, mystics are gifted in the art of union with reality. And that's what you know, I feel like this, this resonant intelligence is. It's, it's this gifted ability and this, this art of union with reality. I thought a lot about it actually after we met last month. Um, it just, you know, I have had many mystical experiences over the past several years and I just can never capture them well. You know, I'm a writer and so I always try to write about them and I do the very best I can, but mm-hmm. words always fail me <laughs> because it's just it's something that I'm feeling and I'm experiencing in that moment. And there's a couple of times when I've written about it well enough that I've been like, oh, okay, I, but yeah, you can never like rel- relive the moment the way that I wish I could, no matter how hard I try. And, you know, as, as somebody who, mm. who writes all the time, it's, it's frustrating. And yet those moments are so beautiful that I know the next time I feel it, that I'm feeling it again. Sometimes just talking about it or thinking about it, I can feel it. Um, just having this conversation with you. Well, we're so grateful that you shared yourself with us and shared your journey. I mean, this is 
been really incredible. And I know that we're going to have feedback from so many listeners who are grateful. I think that, like I said, this definition of, you know, this, this gifted in the art of union with reality, it's, it's this, just this ongoing experience. I don't really have people in my life who, who relate to mystical experiences. Like I said, like I, I went through a period where I had a bunch over a period of like 18 months and they were so intense. And, and yet like at the end of that period, I found myself kind of exhausted from it because I was really letting myself linger and like linger in the sense that I, um, I was really like trying to just explore the depth of my feelings. Um, it was just intense. It took a while to kind of get my bearings afterward, I'd have to say. And in closing, I'll say too that, you know, synchronicities, they're kind of a, a thing too, is I think with with some people when they happen and you wonder why they happen. And, and it's really been kind of a part of my experience too, is just unexplained things that, you know, what's happening here. And this one happened a couple of months ago and it happened, I think within the space of about a day. Um, I was over at a register helping a customer and he saw my name tag and he says, my name, he says, Oh, he says, David. And he goes, you know what the name David means, right? And I said, yeah, it means beloved gift of God. And he says, that's right. And so uh, then like that day we had uh, a new staff member working with us and he saw my name tag. And he says, oh, he says, David, he says, you know what that means, right? And I said, yeah, it means beloved gift of God. And he's like, yes. And then I, I answer the phone uh, up front at the service desk. And there's this customer that walks by. And I, you know, I said my name on the phone, you know, thanks for calling. This is David. Can I help you? And she looks at me and she goes, well, you look like a David. And so anytime that I feel like that, that I doubt my experience or what's happening, it's just these these really incredible reminders happen, and you know they're happening all around us all the time. That's right. Well, that's a really beautiful way to wrap this up, David. Wow! Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to have you, and I hope that you'll come back and talk with us more because I think that there's so many roads we could go down from what we covered tonight. You know. Um, accelerated development <laughs> it's it's rare to find other people who are in it who are living it and so i just want to thank you for sharing yourself with our listeners and with us tonight thank you you're welcome it was great to be here and to be in a place where i could share myself completely and i really thank thank your listeners for being a part of this and i encourage them to share uh their gifts too Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Um, we do appreciate you sharing very much. Uh, and you're right, I'm sure the listeners appreciate it as well. Uh, thanks, Chris, for being on the podcast as well. Always a pleasure. Thank you. It always, It is always a pleasure. And thank you, listeners. We always appreciate you too very much. The Positive Disintegration Podcast is funded by the Dabrowski Centre. If you like what you've heard, please consider donating through the link in the show notes. 
And if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, give us a rating or leave a review. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Instagram. Until next time, keep walking the path to your authentic self.